Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome back to the show. This is Auntie Vice with Fat Chicks on Pop. It's good to be here today with everybody. And today I'm thrilled. I've been waiting for this interview for a while. I have Reagan Chastain. If you get my newsletter, you know I recommend that you pick up her Substack, uh, which is fantastic. She's a writer. She's a researcher. She's a speaker. She produced the book Fat, an owner's manual, which is fantastic. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. Me too. So I discovered your work through your newsletter originally, and then I started reading all the stuff you do. For our listeners who may not be quite as familiar, what's your background? Because you write a lot about fat and a lot about science, but a lot of people do without much background. So you actually have one that's relevant. I do indeed. So I actually got into this work almost 20 years ago now. And my background is research methods and statistics. And at the time, I had spent years yo-yo dieting like so many of us have. And I decided that I wanted to find the best diet, the diet with the highest efficacy rates. And because I am a mega nerd, I decided to do that by performing a literature review of all the research I could find on different weight loss methods. And I cannot stress enough, I was not in school. I did not publish this. I got no credit for it. I had a corporate job. Like this is just the kind of absolute mega nerd I am. And so I, you know, did the literature review, got to the end, was in so much disbelief about what I found that I went back and I performed the entire thing a second time, hours of work. And I was like doing calculations by hand and trying to figure out what I was missing. Cause what I found was that there wasn't a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were actually succeeding in any kind of significant long-term weight loss. And that sort of piqued my interest. And at that time, and for years after, I was not aware that there was this thriving community of fat activists and weight-neutral health advocates that have been going since long before I was born. So I was just kind of in my own little thing of understanding the research and getting into weight science and finding research that showed that behavior-based interventions had greater efficacy, that kind of thing. So that's that's my background. And then I started blogging formally in 2009. On a, My original blog was called Dances with Fat. It was a fat ball, ballroom dancer. Um, and then I, so I was talking originally about my own little journey. And then I kind of, you know, reached out from there. I am a mega nerd. We love mega nerds on this show. But there's a lot of people who think you can say anything with statistics. So as somebody who has a formal research background, as do you, Let's talk about stats for a moment. Can you make your statistics say anything? If the person who is listening to you doesn't understand statistics or doesn't have all the data. I mean, that's how weight science, that's how we've all been fooled into believing that 
weight loss is some kind of ethical evidence-based intervention for anything, right? Is by the manipulation of statistics. And so you can to some extent, but being educated can help to to inoculate you from that essentially. Uh, and having a healthy suspicion it, uh, is reasonable. And especially when I dug into the weight science research, the thing that surprised me most is how many things happened that would have gotten me failed in freshman research methods class. Like not just failed, but I think they would have been like, you know what? Like there's a lot of majors at this college and I think you should probably pick a different one because like you're not understanding this research ethics thing from the most basic level. And this gets peer reviewed and published all the time. And it's incredibly frustrating because people and in particular in my little niche healthcare professionals are supposed to be able to rely on the conclusion, right? So when they say patients experience significant weight loss, you're not supposed to guess that that meant 2.9% of their body weight, right? And that they were regaining at the time that the the study ended. So uh, that's sort of a long-winded way you kind of can can manipulate statistics, but um, if you're educated, then you can also get some clarity around that. And if you have access to all the data. And that's one of the reasons I like your newsletter so much is you break this stuff down. So let's talk about some of these standard manipulations. We'll start with the one you, you pointed out that patients experience significant weight loss. What does that actually mean when it comes to research? <laughs> Almost nothing. So what? Ha- there's two ways that this goes wrong. The first is that first within weight science research, words have been allowed to be redefined to be whatever the study authors want them to be. Words like long term, right? And the study is six months long. How is that long term? It's not. Um, words like significant, right? I was I was talking about that exact study with a quote unquote obesity researcher. And I was like, look, they're calling this significant research. And by the way, that's the only thing you can read without paying for the study. And when you pay for the study, you have to dig for the amount of weight loss. They were not in a hurry to to give that number. Uh, Because what they were trying to prove was that people could have significant weight loss while on psychotropic medications that likely prevent weight loss. It was ridiculous. And so their argument was... It's significant because this is what most commercial programs also produce. So basically, they said, since nobody loses weight, everybody does. So that's a common thing, right? And the researcher I was talking to said, well, I mean, a lot of doctors would consider 3% significant. And I'm like, this is not about people's deeply held, sincerely held beliefs. This is about words mean things. The other thing that happens is the manipulation of the concept of statistically significant. And this one really upsets me because of how very purposeful it has to be. So statistically significant means that it's more likely that whatever result you got happened because of your intervention than by chance. That's all it means, right? So maybe everyone in the study lost a half a pound, but if the analysis finds that that half pound loss was probably due to the intervention rather than just by happenstance or chance, then that is a statistically significant result. Nobody in the world would say that's significant, right? If I said, hey, I left you a significant amount of this gallon of milk for breakfast, and what I left you was like two tablespoons of milk, you would not be like, that's a significant amount of milk. But that is what is considered statistically significant in you know a lot of these studies. So that's the, that's the ways that that can go absolutely wrong. You bring up another point in there is what they're determining as long-term weight loss. In a lot of weight loss studies, what I as your average person walking around 
would not consider long-term, they do, correct? Yes. Well, here's what happened. Um, the weight loss industry knew very early on that there's a two-part biological response to intentional weight loss. In the first short term, like about a year or so, people lose weight as their bodies try to figure out like what's going on. And then our bodies have all these adaptive mechanisms to save us from famine and having to run from bears and all of these things. And so the body adjusts to essentially become a weight regaining, weight maintaining machine. And so in years two through five, almost everybody regains their weight. And so in order to manipulate this, and you can, you know that they knew this because Weight Watchers original charter that was filed for their business was filed on the idea that it would be a repeat business model. So what they've done brilliantly is take credit for this first part of the biological response where people lose weight short term and then blame us and get us to blame ourselves and get us to blame other people for the second part of the exact same biological response when we regain the weight. And so because they know this is going to happen, right? This is a, this is not new. A century of data. A century of data shows that this is the case. And so they can't let the studies go long term because if they went to five years, you would show catastrophic weight regain. And so they shorten the studies and they just redefine the term long term, right? So if you do a bunch of six week studies and then you say, oh, look, this one's two years, it's long term, right? (laughs) Comparatively perhaps, but not for real. And the other way that they manipulate that is they stop the study at two years and Weight Watchers own research showed that people lost 10 pounds in year one, gained back five pounds in year two. And then they stopped tracking it and their chief scientific officer. And like, that's, I, I Googled it like four times. I was like, it's not a chief science officer. No, it's a chief scientific officer. Um, told the press, it's nice to see this validation of what we've been doing. Right? Which is weird because I've never seen a Weight Watchers commercial that says like, join Weight Watchers and have a decent chance of losing five pounds in two years. Um, and also right. like fun research fact, if a variable is going straight up, and you stop observing it, you're not supposed to assume it leveled off the day you stop looking. Like that, again, will get you a big F in freshman research methods. And it happens all the time. And so by redefining long-term and by doing this move the goalpost and declare victory, and by just not explaining that that weight trajectory is going straight up and is expected to be at or above baseline in five years, they're manipulating, again, their results. It's it's something that's accepted. So. You know, I went through my doctoral program, would never have gotten a dissertation through with that type of statistic. Like they would have slaughtered me in in the defense. So how it and and we've known this stuff for, for decades. How is it still getting published in peer review journals? Um, for a lot of reasons. First of all, um, the idea of what is true about weight and health has reached what I call an everybody knows status. Everybody knows this is true. So a study will start with like, quote, obesity causes all of these diseases and this many deaths, and there will be no citation, which like, can you imagine? And and it will also say, and it's a crisis of epic proportions, and it will be a study about weight stigma, right? So they're like, fat people existing is a terrible problem. It has to be solved. Let's talk about stigma. What? No, you you already did it. Um, so there's that... It's, it's so ridiculous to me. And then that person will get booked as a weight stigma expert. Um, so so yeah, there's this everybody knows so that peer reviewers are just kind of like, yeah, sure, that sounds right. And they're not having that kind of robust examination of the text that you would hope for. 
Um, the other thing is that a lot of these journals are actually owned by organizations that are funded by the industry. So there are these groups, the, the quote, obesity society, the quote, obesity action coalition. And these are astroturf organizations. They claim to be advocacy groups for higher weight people. They are in fact funded by and act as lobbying arms for the weight loss industry, the bariatric surgery industry. And so they create these peer reviewed journals and then they pump out these articles and then they cite each other in this like sort of closed circle situation. And then it all looks on the up and up. And I highly recommend uh, Lucy Aframore did a piece about weight management and validity of weight management and dietetics articles. And I highly recommend reading that. Sadly, it's, I think it's maybe 10 years old, but it's still completely valid. It's still exactly what's happening. So one of the problems with the rate, and you bring it up, is this, everybody knows. We all assume being heavier causes all of these health problems. We all assume behavioral interventions can cause you to lose weight. So how do you start breaking through some of that noise? Because it becomes very difficult to get alternatives published and out there. Yeah, it's incredibly tough because of this everybody knows because the journals are owned by the industry that would be harmed by your research. Also funding for research is earmarked for like quote unquote obesity prevention and quote unquote obesity treatment. And so it's incredibly difficult to get funded for research that isn't in that vein. And so you know, there are a lot of people who have scraped and found funding who have published on self-published on their own or self-funded their research rather. Um, so, and then just talking about it, right. That's kind of why I started weight and healthcare. And I, you know, in the research that I'm pursuing, it's self-funded research, which is really tough, right. Cause there's only so much you can do. I'm not remotely wealthy, right? So it's not like I can just fund some kind of amazing meta-analysis. So, um, but it's it's so important that we, if we're not able to publish, we're speaking out, we're finding other venues, you know, perhaps it's not peer-reviewed, but putting this stuff out there, I think is incredibly important. When you speak to other healthcare providers, what has been the reception and has that changed in the last yeah, so I started giving talks to providers in 2009. And at that time, the Q&As were straight up hostile. Um in fact, I like we would do usually it'd be one person with authority who would invite me in and then everybody else was forced to come. And so we would do all of these things to try to like bring down the hostile. We'd be like we're serving breakfast and you can wear jeans like whatever it took to kind of try to make this better. But um, there it was really hostile. There was a lot of disbelief. Um, and I can you know remember people walking out, people just calling me a liar, right? And so I, in sort of a, a seminal moment at that time, I was talking about patient disengagement, and that look if patients come in and we prescribe, they diagnose them as fat, prescribe weight loss, like they are often not coming back. If they have a terrible experience with weight stigma, they are often not coming back. And a doctor said, look, if they don't come back, that's on them. And I was like, okay, new plan. You are required to provide ethical evidence-based medicine. Intentional weight loss does not meet that threshold. Here's an hour and a half of research. Why? Fight me. And those Q&As got so much more productive. 
Because I was like, look, if you're going to argue with me, that's fine, but you better be packing some evidence. Like, do not bring everybody knows to my evidence fight. We're not doing that. And if you are packing evidence, we're going to, I'm going to pull it up on my phone and we're going to talk about the limitations of that right here. Right. We're going to do that. And so over time, I've really seen a shift and it's this shift is too slow. The shift is leaving too many people behind, but I am seeing a shift where, first of all, practitioners are asking, you know, for me to come in. People are coming to the table there in some talks, like people are self-selecting to come in and talk about this stuff. Um, they've heard of these principles before. There's still like tremendous pushback. And and I get when I did my literature review, I had a ton of like anger and disbelief and defensiveness and incredulousness. And I always talk about like that's a fair and valid emotion to have. This is different than what you've been taught than what you've been sure of. But um in in this story that John Robeson once told me that within the whole Galileo situation, right? So Galileo creates a telescope, figures out the earth revolves around the sun. They call him a heretic, make him uh, recant and stick him under house arrest. Terrible. But the piece of it that's interesting to me is that Galileo's contemporaries refused to look through the telescope. So they weren't saying like this telescope is poorly made or, hey, dude, wait, your math is way off here. They just wouldn't look. And so I tell that story and I'm like, this is an invitation to look through the telescope. If you're feeling these feelings come up, that's valid. And that's a chance to dig further. And like, let's do that together. And I'm just, I'm able to talk about patient engagement. Like I'm not getting that kind of pushback anymore. So I feel like there is progress, however slow, however painful. Um, And I, which is, you know, again, too slow and leaving too many people behind, but it's actually at least a good indicator that there's some progress, I think. With weight stigma in healthcare, it's like racism and sexism and all of those things work to compound to make horrible medical experiences for folks. And with all of it, the research is showing the problem isn't weight. The problem isn't race. It's racism. It's that phobia. So why does it take, like, we have the evidence. Why does it take so long for medical professionals to start changing their mind? Yeah. So I'll come back to that, but I want to say really quickly that in fact, weight stigma is racism. Weight stigma is rooted in and inextricable from racism and anti-Blackness. And so all weight stigma um, disproportionately impacts those communities and hugely recommend reading folks like Sabrina Strings, Deshaun Harrison, Joy Cox, E.K. Delphine, et cetera, all the, those scholars and, and um, authors to really understand that. In terms of why we're not making progress, so they've created a beautiful cycle with weight stigma in healthcare in that the experience of weight stigma, the experience of weight cycling, or which is yo-yo dieting, um, these things are correlated with the same health issues to which being higher weight is correlated. Right. Similarly, with healthcare inequalities. And so we've got a system that creates these what are called confounding variables. Right. So you've got this relationship. We say, oh, well, higher weight people have a higher incidence of this health issue. So in freshman research methods, the first thing we do when we have a relationship like that is say, huh, what else could be causing this? Right. Is there anything else that this group of people experiences that could cause this outcome? And in this case, weight cycling, weight stigma, and healthcare inequalities are three what are confounding variables, three things that could affect that relationship. And these are three things that are not even discussed, let alone controlled for in research that tries to say, oh, higher weight causes this health issue, or tries to sort of glide over the fact that all they've got is a correlation and there's no causal mechanism. 
And so we've got this cycle where our system creates weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. And then the negative outcomes of that get blamed on fat bodies. And then those negative outcomes get used to justify more weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. And so it's a perfect cycle. And unless you step back and say, hey, wait, there are other things at play here. And what would happen if people were not constantly exposed to weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities, then you can just be comfortably in that circle, blaming fat bodies for the harms that are done to them. And this is similar to what we see um, when race is blamed rather than the experience of racism is blamed, right? So, and it happens to a lot of different marginalized populations where someone being at higher risk gets interpreted as being this person causes higher risk, which is not the same thing. What type of education to incoming healthcare providers, whether it be nursing school, medical school, uh, you know, the, all of the different permutations of that, get around nutrition and weight, because this is what I find really good. Yeah. So nutrition is like a few hours um, in most programs, which is why, I mean, there's great research that, um, and when I say great, it's, it's not good research. It's, it's, you know, entertaining research about doctors and the advice that they give on nutrition for fat patients, right? Like instead of a Mars bar, reach for a banana was one of them. And I was like, I would bet all the money I have that that doctor doesn't know if this person eats Mars bars or if they're allergic to bananas, right? That's incredibly specific and weird advice. And so there's some research on that. Um, So there's very little education around nutrition for doctors and their education around weight is all weight causes health issues. See your higher weight patients as kind of walking, talking pathologies and focus on weight first. There's even some, I broke down an unbelievably poorly done paper suggesting that in folks with type two diabetes, we should, who are fat, we should treat weight first before worrying about blood glucose. That's, that goes beyond unethical, right? That's dangerous. Um, and so it's their education is just within that paradigm, which is comfy and what the people who are, you know, teaching them learned as well. And so there's not a ton of teaching folks. And when I speak in medical schools and those out there in medical school will understand there's, it's such a rigorous thing and there's so much to learn. And it's so much based on these board exams, right? the USMLE one and two, step one and two. So when they find out that what I'm teaching is not on that, those exams, there's a tendency to like take out their netters, flashcards and just like zone out, which I completely understand. But there's more like there's medical students for size inclusivity is doing incredible work around this. And there are obviously, I'm just one of many people who are doing work around this, but there's just not much education and the education they have is not um, critical. And it's not an environment that encourages students to say, hey, wait, like, I think we might be getting this wrong. Like that is not typically the environment that medical school creates for folks and that nursing school creates for folks. Which I love you bring up because as somebody who went through a doctoral program and not medicine, I was taught to question everything and find the gaps and find the hole. Why is it like, I've worked with so many physicians and they kind of come out of school thinking they know it and they don't need to research anymore. How do we combat that? Because it's such a different perspective on your profession. Yeah. So um, are you asking how to combat it as a patient or like as systems work? Uh, Both. Because I feel you have 
both to say. (laughs) I do. Um, So as a patient, this is really tough. And like, this is a whole like hour and a half workshop I give. So I'll try to condense it into like the the little nuggets. But um, first of all, we are the CEO of our body, right? And a lot of folks are taught that what a doctor says is what goes and we have no right to question them. But in truth, we're coming to that table with expertise. Even if we don't have any medical expertise, we live in this body. We live the life we live. We know like what will work for us and what won't. You know, we have a lot of information to bring to the table. And so if our healthcare professional doesn't view it that way, that is a problem in and of itself. Right. But we, when we walk out of the doctor's office, they're on to the next patient. We still live in this body. And so we can kind of start to take back and claim that power of like, you're on the, the board of directors or whatever, but I'm the CEO here, you know, and we're going to talk about this. We can also use tips and tricks because obviously there's, as with everything, a ton of privilege involved. Right. I have a massive amount of privilege in this arena, not just as a white cisgender, currently able-bodied neurotypical person, but like as someone with this education and someone who what I call personality privilege, like in conflict, I get really calm. And all the information in my head is available to me. And it I'm not, and like for a lot of people, that's not it, right? They get emotional, they get cloudy thinking, and that's a such a valid response. But because of the way our culture works, I'm gonna get more respect from the doctor than someone who starts crying, even though that's completely valid and reasonable. And if you became a doctor, you should probably have been like aware that that would happen. Uh, people crying. Um, though they probably shouldn't be crying because they're experiencing stigma at your hands. That's a whole other topic. Um, and so for higher weight patients, we can kind of bypass a lot of things by saying, hey, what do you do for thin people with this health issue? Right? Because going back to their education around food, doctors and other healthcare practitioners are constantly, uncritically telling fat people to lose weight, to cure or prevent health issues that thin people get. Right? So being thinner can neither be a sure preventative nor a sure cure. But they're like, well, try that first. Try being thin. And if that doesn't work, we'll look at some kind of ethical evidence-based medicine. And the problem is, as we've seen, almost nobody gets thin. So what that does is just delay care that a thin person with the same symptomology would have gotten on day one. And then the problem that happens during that lack of care, when the the fat person comes back with a more intense presentation, will be blamed on them being fat and not on the delayed care, right? So we're going back to that cycle. So as a patient, we can try like that bypass. Hey, what do you do for thin people? Um, We can discuss research. We can also put the burden of proof on the doctor. Um, and this is something because I the first thing I want to do is like start spouting studies, and that's not always effective. Because like when I'm paid, hired to be a speaker to educate doctors, they still sometimes have an issue learning from me because I'm not a doctor. So in a patient doctor situation, there's a totally different power balance. So you can talk about that, or we can say, hey, like so you're wanting me to do weight loss. Can you? I just like to see literally any study where like let's say even just fifty percent of the people lose, you know and maintain this amount of weight loss over five years. And they can't give it to you because it doesn't exist. And so I once had a uh, doctor say, oh, well, there are tons of them. And I was like, oh, cool. Then I just want one. And she said, well, I'm not going to, or she said, I don't want to debate with you. And I was like, (laughs) didn't say it. I'm like, no, no, you don't. Like (laughs) you picked the wrong patient for this debate, but it's, it's so hard. And so it's also okay to do whatever you have to do to get what you need. 
right? Yup, I'm totally going to read up on that or I'm totally going to start that diet. But like, could I get a refill of my medication? Like, could we, or like, could we reattach my severed arm? Could we focus on that? Um, And then from a systems perspective, we, it's a paradigm shift that we need to make. And the thing right now that is so um, terrifying to me is the way that the weight loss industry and Novo Nordisk in particular are co-opting decades of work from weight neutral health professionals and activists, from fat liberation activists, and trying to um, turn that work to be about weight loss. Right. So Novo Nordisk started what they're calling an anti-stigma campaign when they um, released uh, Wagovi. And it's called um, It's Bigger Than Me, which is like, get it? Because fat people are big. I was like, if your anti-stigma program sounds like it was named by your sixth grade bully, it probably isn't that anti-stigma. And their solution for weight stigma is insurance coverage for their drug, right? But it's insidious and healthcare professionals believe it and well-meaning healthcare professionals. They, the quote obesity action coalition has been a long time player in this astroturf space. And back when they were trying to convince the American Medical Association to declare being higher weight a disease, Right, which they eventually overrode their own committee on science and public health to do. There were like 10 different groups giving more than $100,000, all of which were weight loss companies. Now there's one and it's Novo Nordisk and they funded it to the tune of $600,000 a year. But this, and this is something that happened, this is out of the sort of Purdue Pharma OxyContin playbook, which is where they're pulling a lot of their strategy, right? Create these AstroTurf organizations that work to influence from a governmental level to patient and practitioner interaction and behavior. And so that's what's so scary to me is that from a systems perspective, the idea of anti-weight stigma is getting co-opted, right? Researchers who openly say that like they want to eradicate fatness from the world are booked as weight stigma experts, thin white people, right? Who believe the world would be better with no fat people in it. But you know, we want to not stigmatize them while we eradicate them from the earth. That's considered anti-weight stigma work. It's terrifying. And I think we're in this moment now where that is the work is to push back against that, to say that eradication is stigma. Pathologization is stigma. And that getting insurance coverage for a dangerous drug is not anti-weight stigma. Using person-first language, which comes from not weight neutral health advocates, not fat liberation community, but from the weight loss industry, like that is about suggesting that simply existing in a higher weight body, regardless of actual health, cardiometabolic health, symptomology, is a chronic lifelong health condition so that they can sell us quote unquote, treatments for life, right? But calling that an anti-stigma intervention so that it gets adopted widely across healthcare. Like there's so much of that. And to me, that's the, that's where we're at right now. That's the moment we're in. And they really have picked up on the, the Oxycontin fight. I mean, they're, they're quoting studies that don't really have any data behind them. And, you know, they have these aspect organizations and all that. Uh, you did a wonderful, or continually doing wonderful breakdowns of the, the Wagovi Ozembic study. So, uh, let's talk about a little bit of what they're showing. So, you know, it's all the rage right now. There's tons of people trying to get it. Uh, I'm currently recording this in San Francisco where most people who are diabetic can't get the drug because there's mm-hmm. such demand. 
what is the actual data saying? Yeah. So these, this class of drugs, GLP-1 agonists, are a solid class of drugs for type 2 diabetes. They have significant side effects, but for folks who are contraindicated for other medications, who can't get that glycemic control that they are looking for from other medications, they can be good drugs. But what happened was they realized that they produced this side effect of weight loss. And so Novo Nordisk, which had previously, its previous big moneymaker was insulin. They were the most aggressive at price gouging on insulin in the United States, which gives us our lens, right? We know that this company has said, we will kill people for money, period. We could sell this cheaper. We won't. We will kill people for profit. So this is who this company is. And we have to view every decision they make through that lens at this point. And so when they found out that when people were on this drug, they had a little bit of weight loss, they started to figure out how to market it to get the side effect. Um, And so the way to do that is to put people on the highest possible dose. The the standard dose of Wagovi is 2.4 milligrams, which is 0.4 milligrams more than the highest dose of Ozempic, which is the same drug, but for diabetes. So titration-wise, for type 2 diabetes, you start at 0.25, which is a non-therapeutic dose just to get your body used to it. You go up to 0.5, and then you only increase if you aren't able to get the glycemic control you're looking for. For weight loss, you start at 0.25, and then you aggressively increase the dose every four weeks until you get to 2.4. And you only come off of that if you can't what's called tolerate it. And we're getting tons of reports that people are being asked to tolerate horrible side effects or being told that that's reasonable. And then there are serious side effects as well. So what are we doing this for? Their own study, the 68-week study that got the drug approved, showed that people started to gain weight right around the 68-week mark, even when they were on the drug. And their own study showed that when people go off the drug, they gain their weight back really rapidly, which is like not news. It's every weight loss drug ever. And so their unbelievably profitable solution to that is that people should stay on the drug for their whole life. So their long-term study is two years. And I'm air quoting long-term, right? So it's two years. And what happens in the two years is we see at 68 weeks, people do in fact start to gain weight and then they start weight cycling and then their weight is up at the two-year mark, even those who stay on the medication. So we have no reason to believe that this will actually create long-term weight loss. Also, the this, the person-year data around side effects is really concerning, right? Because they look at 100 person-years, And so we're talking about their average participant was, I think, 47.3 years old or 47.3, I think, 47 point something. And so like that person would experience over 100 adverse events in their, if they had an average lifespan. And then some folks want to start it at 12 years old. Those folks are experiencing hundreds of adverse events, multiple serious adverse events, multiple events that are serious enough to discontinue the product. Like it's when you're talking about a drug for life, that's a, a serious issue. We're also finding that, um, and this is sort of what happens. I, I want to back up a little bit. So FDA approval of drugs is based on a risk-benefit analysis. So are the benefits of this drug worth the risks of this drug? Because all drugs do have some kind of side effect. The problem is that they use this mountain of crap research that says, oh, being higher weight is correlated with all of these health issues. And they say, see, it's so terrible that it's worth killing fat people to try to make them thin. And the FDA goes, yes, you're right. And then they approve the drug. And so it's incredibly scary to me that we're, we, our healthcare is based on this basic tenet that it's worth um, fat people's lives or quality of life to make us thin. 
And that's typically not included in informed consent conversations that fat patients have, right? They get the blow off. Oh, all drugs have side effects, right? Which is true, but not an informed consent conversation. Um, not a shared decision-making conversation. So yeah, so that's really concerning. And then recently they put out a press release in lieu of publishing their study around um, the effect on uh, cardiovascular risk. And the press release had like four lies in the headline because they said that it was a 20% reduction in quote-unquote overweight and obese adults. And in fact, the 20% reduction is a relative risk calculation, which not to give a whole statistics class, but relative risk is a, is a much bigger number than absolute risk. So absolute risk, when you're talking about like what will happen to me is a much better measure and their absolute risk looks to be a little bit lower than 2%. So, but they said this 20% uh, risk, they said adults, but in fact, the average age of their participant, well, all the participants were 45 and older. So again, words have meaning. So if you say adults, that doesn't mean people 45 and older. Also, it wasn't just adults. It was adults who do have existing cardiovascular disease, but do not have type 2 diabetes and a whole list of other exclusions. Um, and then they said people who are, quote, overweight and, quote, obese, but in fact, they started a BMI of 27. And body mass index is a ridiculous, useless, nonsense measurement, but it has a clear meaning. Like, this one is obvious. Like, quote, overweight starts at a BMI of 25. So the fact that they started at 27 tells me that they are deeply cherry picking this data to get the result that they want. Right. And then, but the press, most of the press uncritically published this. And so their, their research is it's performed by them. They make the decision as to whether or not to publish. So we don't know what research they did that they were like, nah, there's a problem in science. And there's a, an old, I mean, older book called Bad Pharma that I highly recommend people read because it's unfortunately not in any way outdated, right? But it's where people can, you do this trial and if the results aren't favorable, you just put the results in a drawer and you never publish it. And it creates this incredible bias. And so I put, I believe Novo Nordisk will go to any length, right? I have no faith in these people to do anything remotely ethical. And so just based on what I've seen them do. Right. So their research is something that just has to be scrutinized. And when they don't even publish it, when they just give a press release and the media buys it hook, line, and sinker, that's so concerning to me because they've been, um, they had to settle with the, the United States government because they were told to put um, packaging uh, dangers about a drug that they had, Victoza. And they did it, but then they told their salespeople to pair it with the message that it really wasn't that bad, that dangerous. So they got in trouble for that. They've been kicked out of the British Pharmaceutical Association for deceptive practices. They're being investigated. There's class action lawsuits, right? This is not a small thing. And so basically what happened on that day was a company that's been investigated in a couple countries at least put out a press release. And then the results of the, the headline got published uncritically across media that should 1 million percent know better. Well, and let's talk about the, the stigma and the willingness to kill fat patients, because when we do surveys uh, of people, uh, just in general, most people agree with the statement that they would give up five years of life expectancy to lose weight and be their ideal weight. So it really is deeply ingrained that 
people would self-select to shorten their lifespan to do this. So is there a way at this point to have really informed consent where people, because you have folks who are literally willing to shorten their own lives to beat them? Yeah. So this is a point that Deborah Gard, who's an incredible um, activist and therapist in this space, has made that getting informed consent around this is, you know, impossible in many ways. And part of that is because, you know, we might say, oh, weight loss is about health, but it's also about trying to move yourself out of an oppressed category. It's what would you give to not face this oppression? Um, And that is a deeply, when we're telling people you should risk your life or shorten your life, to change yourself to suit your oppressors. That's a deeply dangerous message. And I take a very firm view of body autonomy. I think people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies. But I also take a very firm view of what constitutes ethical evidence-based medicine. And that's where we diverge. Right. And I, so I'm queer. I came out in the mid nineties in Texas, which was an interesting time and place to come out. And in my own personal experience, that was the time when I was most told like, look, being queer is a choice. It's bad for you. It's bad for society. And homophobia is terrible. So you should become straight. I never bought into that, luckily. Right. But I know people who did. I know people who tried conversion therapy, um, so called conversion therapy, right, to try to make themselves straight. Um, And so, as a fat person, while no two oppressed groups are the same, I do see the parallels there, right? That I'm being told fat is a choice. It's bad for you. It's bad for society. Weight stigma is terrible. So, you should try to become thin by any means necessary. And so I think it's a real issue that we don't talk about that like people want weight loss and we're, they're taught like to say it's about health because of the stigma of saying like, look, I just don't want to be stigmatized as a fat person anymore, right? It's much, much easier to say it's about my health. And I understand that. Um, But in truth, a lot of this is about trying to move out of a stigmatized category. And the tragedy is it's probably not going to work. Right. For the vast majority of people who attempt intentional weight loss, it's probably not going to work. For those who try the most dangerous methods like surgeries, it very well may not work. And it very may well lead to horrific lifelong side effects or very early death. Right. And those things, there's getting informed consent around that is difficult, but the medical profession for the in large part is not even trying because they also believe that it's better to be thin or dead. And I feel like we've got a medical system that thinks they want me thin or dead and they don't really care much which, but one or the other, right? Just not existing as a fat person. Could you please not do that? And that is so dangerous because it means that people aren't getting information. Like weight loss surgeries get marketed like LuLaRoe leggings. There are symposiums and brochures and videos. If you go to a hospital website and look at like their gallbladder surgery page versus their weight loss surgery page, nobody on the gallbladder page is like, now I can finally get a date and shop in my favorite store. Like that's not a surgical outcome, but that's how it is for these dangerous interventions. So it like it really is dangerous. And I understand, right? Weight stigma is real and it impacts our lives in real ways. And you cannot self-love your way out of systemic oppression, no matter how much resiliency you build, no matter how much body love you have. I cannot love myself into an MRI that does not accommodate me, right? And so my personal choice, understanding that was like, look, I spent years hating my body on behalf of weight stigma, fighting my body on behalf of weight stigma. And what I do now is I fight weight stigma on behalf of my body. 
And for me, it's the best choice I ever made. Right? It changed everything in my life for the better. Um, even though weight stigma is still real, even though weight stigma still impacts me. So, but yeah, it's tough. I get it. You know, people want to escape being in a stigmatized body. Well, and similar to the the queer community, you know, I came out in the 80s and, um, you know, there was this whole, you know, will it play in Peoria? Let's just be acceptable enough so straight people will give us a few rights, right? And clearly that doesn't work because look at we, where we are now. Like, we're never going to be fucking acceptable enough for straight people. Uh, but we do have bad apologists in our own community of, you know, well, just try to, to make yourself smaller or look smaller or don't ask for accommodation. And those are the conversations I have find I have more difficulty having than like the ones with my, my own doctors or family and stuff is getting, how do you talk to somebody who carries that shame of being fat? Cause I, I'm now out there. I'm like, I will pose new, like you would see all my rolls and my flaps because somebody's got to see it. But are there ways to have those conversations with the fat apologists in our own community? Yeah, it's tough. And like, the thing is internalized oppression. When we buy into these oppressive ideas about fat bodies, it causes us to participate in our own oppression and it causes us to participate in the oppression of other people. And that's where it goes wrong. Like if somebody wants to pay for two airline seats, go ahead. If you think I should have to pay twice as much for the same trip, now we have an issue, right? And so I think how we talk to and about those folks depends on our relationship with them. Like if they're people in our life, we can kind of talk about like, look, I was, I used to think that same thing, right? I have a blog post where I think I was like, look, it's like the, if it fits, it ships. Right. Like, of course I should have to pay for two plane seats. And then I was like, hold up. Like, how come they knew fat people existed when they made these planes and these policies? Why am I paying twice as much for the same thing, same service, which is a flight from point A to point B in a seat that accommodates me? Right. And so we can help reframe. We can put things out like on our own social media where these folks can see them. Um, we can have these conversations. And then at the end of the day, I also think we, People are allowed to think that way, but it doesn't mean it's anti-weight stigma. Just because someone is fat doesn't mean they're coming from an anti-weight stigma perspective, right? Like there are, like again, people attempt conversion therapy. They want to no longer be queer and they can do that, but they don't get a float on the pride parade. You know what I mean? Like there, we have to be clear, like all fat people are not part of um, anti-weight stigma community. Right. I think Marilyn Wan says, like, my community is people who are, and I'm absolutely paraphrasing, sorry, Marilyn. Um, but like my community is people who are against fat oppression. Right. My community isn't just fat people. And so it does become a problem because, like, you know, Novo Nordisk and the quote obesity action coalition got a bunch of, of fat people to say, oh no, we're totally on board. This is the greatest thing. And what, you know, we want Congress to give us our right to, to take this medication. And again, body autonomy versus ethical evidence-based medicine here, right? If your patient says they want to fly, they're allowed to try that, but you can't be like, yes, I endorse you jumping off a roof and flapping your arms real hard because like, it probably won't work, but wouldn't it be cool if it did? That's not medical practice, right? That's not ethical. But yeah, it's having these conversations, I think is really hard. Um, and really worth it. 
And it depends again on like your relationship and kind of what you're willing to lose. Right. And then if you're not willing or able to lose, like if it's a, a power imbalance situation where the person is in a position of authority over you, if they're providing, you know, <clears throat> things that you need, if they're like a parent, guardian, that kind of thing, then it can be about setting boundaries. Right. Like, I love you and we're not going to talk about this. And if we do, so boundaries aren't about telling somebody else what they can't do. It's about saying what you're going to do. Right. So it's like, look, if you start this conversation, I'm going to. And then some consequence that you can follow through with, and it doesn't have to be big, right? I'm going to take my plate to my room. I'm going to go home and we can try again, you know, next holiday. I'm going to, you know, go into the living room. I'm going to act like I don't hear you, like whatever. <laughs> I'm going to change the the conversation to, you know, local sporting team facts or facts about dolphins. Like, but yeah, it's, I think it's, it's really difficult and it's hard when it comes from our own community and especially when people build a name as like influencers. And we see this a lot with a co-option of quote unquote body positivity, right? Where we they build the name as influencers and then they're like, I'm going to do intentional weight loss. And you're like, what the? And then when they weight cycle and they're fat again, now they're influencers for body positivity again, right? It's really, there's a lot of issues with influencer culture and this exact behavior. This is really hard work to do full time. And this is your, your life. Where do you <laughs> replenish yourself? Uh, it's such a good question. Um, yeah. So I want to say, first of all, the fact that I can do this full time is a, is a massive privilege and is part of all the privileges that I hold. So I think of it as like, it's a dream job that I wish didn't exist. Just to say, we shouldn't need somebody to do what I do, but the fact that I, this is what I would do full time in the world that we're in. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I know that it's not an easy career to come by. Um, and I know that a lot of it is about privilege. Um, and in terms of replenishing myself, so I I consider activism a self-care practice. Not all activism, right? But there are ways that I've cultivated activism to be because like I see injustice and I just, you know, I feel the whole, you know, nervous system go. And so if I just do something, right? I find somebody, if it's, you know, injustice that I don't personally experience, I find and center a voice from that community. I, you know, repost someone from my community who has less privilege than I do. I say something out loud. It it helps to downregulate all of that for me. So there's that piece of it. I have an incredible partner, my fiance, Julianne, who is also a fat activist. And so living in a relationship, I've, you know, I've dated many people who were understanding, but still like would randomly come you with, oh, but like, what about the, like, are you really, you know? And so like, that does not happen in my house, which is an, again, an incredible privilege. Um, we foster uh, high medical needs dogs. And that is a lovely like way to kind of get out of things. And just, we have this rotating cast of goofy dogs that we get to hang out with. Um, but yeah, no, somebody, I was at it, I was giving a talk and it was like during a break and somebody came up to me really recently, like last month, my first talk after COVID where I like flew. And she said, you know, you've been an influence in my life since like 2010. And it just is occurring to me today that, that the work you do might have a cost to you personally. And I was like, no, it, wait, actually... <laughs> And like, I, it's just not something I think about a lot. And so I think that helps too, that I'm just like, I'm just going to do the next thing in front of me. So, and again, that goes back to personality privilege, cultural privilege, all of that. 
That's wonderful. I love your work. I love the, the nerdiness of me loves the breakdowns of all the studies and all the links. And it's just, it's so good. It's so good. And the book that the owner's manual is fantastic. Highly recommend it. If folks want to find you, if they want to follow your work, if they want to subscribe to Substack, plug all your sites. Okay, awesome. So my Substack is weightandhealthcare.com. And in all of my work, I really try to make sure money's not a barrier. So you can read Weight and Healthcare for free, or you can subscribe um, if you want to and are able to support it financially. And then my original blog, danceswithfat.org. Um, I don't post there anymore, but there's 1,800 posts that, that have a lot of different like content if that's helpful. But mostly what lives there is my video library. So I do monthly... Um, vi- monthly online workshops. And like the upcoming one in November is about dealing with diet culture and fat phobia at the holidays. And so those, all of those workshops, and then there are videos from all of the past workshops that people can look at. And all of those have a pay what you can afford option against to make sure money isn't a barrier. So those are the two main places to find me. And then from Dances with Fat, you can find all my social media and YouTube and anything else you might want to find. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your work. My listeners and and my followers know I recommend you all the time and and repost your stuff because it is so good and and the inner queer nerd of me just adores everything you do. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for letting me be a little part of it. Thank you for asking me, do you want to talk about statistics? That doesn't happen nearly as much as I'd like it to in my <laughs> life. Um so your work is incredible, seriously. I'm so grateful and just happy to be in community with you and thank you. Hi, listeners, it's your Auntie Vice here. Do you like all the geeky, nerdy, history, factual, cosplay, sci-fi stuff that I bring up on this podcast? If so, you're going to want to check out The Geek History of Time with Damian Harmony and Ed Blaylock on all streaming channels. listeners do you like my interviews with various authors do you want to center queer voices do you want to talk to other queer nerds about queer books about queer people then you should join my new discord server the big queer book club we meet once a month to chat about queer books by queer authors with other queers and it's fun our first meeting will be january 17th and we'll be featuring the book by lamaya h called hijab butch blues Check out the show notes for more details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith.
For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.